Okay, next week we start uh, the New Testament, and I'm kind of excited about it. I've been doing some work on it, so I hope that you're back. I hope you tell other folks about it. If this is your first time in our class and you're here because Pastor David invited you to a small group, I want to welcome you to your small group. And if you'll talk to the people around you, they'll tell you all about our connection groups, which is another way we do the small group thing in here. Even though we're not so small, there are donuts and coffee back here, which you're allowed to bring in here as long as you don't tell anybody you bring them in here. It's kind of the, the uh, don't ask, don't tell policy um, in a different way. Now we start class. This summer, y'all were gracious enough to let me teach a series that was deep on my heart to write. And it's one that I knew I would not get a chance to write time-wise unless I also taught it. So that the time I normally spend writing our lessons, I could invest in writing what hopefully will be published as a book. And if that is, in fact, what uh, happens in God's great care, then it's our, our intention to make sure each of you is a reward for sitting through this get a copy of that book. So we'll try and do that. This is the last week. It's Epilogue and Eternity. I think the actual book itself is going to have two more chapters that I haven't had time to teach this summer. You'll have to read the book for those once they're done. But we've gotten almost all of it done this summer. And so here we are today. Epilogue, we're going to review a little bit of what got us here. Eternity, we're going to look in the window on what's ahead of us. So let's do that together. I want to urge you to consider this statement. If you see heaven as a lottery instead of a destiny, then your God is still too small. If you see heaven as a lottery, maybe it's there. I hope it's there. If you see heaven as a lottery instead of a destiny, then your God is still too small, and we need to grow in our understanding of God. Let's proceed. We live in a world that's got statistics, that's got data, that's got uh, all sorts of numbers. We take math in school. We learn arithmetic along with reading and writing. But it's amazing how we don't really live out statistics that well. It's amazing to me, if you look at the average state lottery in the United States of America, the jackpot in the average state lottery, do you know what your odds are of winning without looking at your sheet? Your odds at winning are 1 in 18 million. Okay? Your odds of getting murdered this year are 1 of 18,000. You have a thousand times more likelihood to get killed than you do to win the lottery. And that's the state lottery. If you want to play... Powerball and win the huge money, you've got a 1 in 80 million chance of winning. 1 in 80 million. Let me put that into, context, into uh, something that's understandable. 1 in 80 million is almost too hard to understand. So here, I'll put it this way. You're three times more likely to get killed by a bear this year. Then you are to win. Now you're thinking, I don't live around bears. Okay, 
let me just urge you, don't take a bath before you go buy your lottery ticket. Because if you take a bath, you are a hundred times more likely to drown in the bathtub than you are to win that lottery. And I'm not even going to tell you how much more likely you are to get killed in a car wreck on the way to buy the lottery ticket than you are to win. Not, your response is, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk. Oh, you're thousands of times more likely to get killed getting hit by a car walking than you are to win. And yet, one out of every two people have played the lottery, statistically in America. With those types of odds, one out of every two. Why? Because I fell lucky, which is I feel lucky, spelled the way we spelled it in Lubbock. I fell lucky. Excuse me for that typo. I feel lucky. And then our mind starts playing this game. It's the what if game. Well, what if I did win? Okay, maybe one out of 80 million, but one out of 80 million will win. What if it's me? What am I going to do with that? I'll give the money to the Lord. So we start playing the what-if game, and pretty soon, some folks find themselves supplementing the education fund of the state of Texas, buying that lottery ticket with their fingers crossed. And these words on their lips, I hope I win. Now, when we use that word hope in reference to a lottery ticket, we're doing something that's very different than our concept of what heaven is and an eternal life. If we go into heaven and say, I've got my fingers crossed, if we're looking at death, if our mother had died this week, like the Clintons down here on the front, And the best they've got is a hope that their mom is in heaven. And their fingers are crossed. Then our God is still too small. Because if your God cares about you only in this world and only in your life. If your God who resurrected Jesus doesn't have resurrection power over your life. Then your God is way too small. So let's begin. Heaven is what we're going to work towards, but we have the epilogue first. So I'd like to review, for those of you who haven't been here each week, if you find something interesting in what I say, you can go back and watch it on the internet, you can go back and listen to it on the internet, or you can go back and read it off the internet. If you do remember these all, then uh, let this be your review as we get into this week. We started with the first chapter, in essence, of the book was to talk about the grandeur of God. God is so great and grand beyond anything we can imagine. If there are 100 sextillion stars, which is the best estimate right now of the astronomers, if there are that many stars in the heaven. Keep in mind we worship a God who Isaiah says marked off the heavens with a span of his hand. That's finger, pinky tip to thumb tip. With a span of his hand, he marked out all of the stars. 
The Bible teaches that God is not a limited God, limited in a part of the universe, limited in a part of earth, limited in, in, in the world we see. And even We only see two to 3,000 stars. And that's without the light pollution of Houston or a major city. But there are that many stars. And the Bible's point is that God is infinite. He does not have anything finite. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He stretches throughout time and space and even beyond time and space. He exists not only in this universe and in this world order, but he exists totally independent of it. Such that it is nothing but something he holds in his hand. Not only that, we went the next week and we talked further. We talked about the atom and how as a human being we have a whole lot of these things in us. The number of atoms you and I have in ourselves is astronomical. And those atoms aren't even the end of it. Even beyond the atom, the atom itself is made up of electrons, protons, and neutrons. But even with the protons and neutrons, they're made up of subatomic particles. And you can take it all the way down to the quarks. And even the quarks, which is the smallest thing that science has been able to determine, is within that atom nucleus. Is such that scientists think maybe there are like vibrating strings that make up the quarks. Since we started this class, the Higgs boson particle has made news. As scientists believe, they may have discovered evidence of it. It's called the God particle. Why is it called the God particle? That phrase was originally coined a number of years ago because this is the particle that is everywhere, but you really can't see it or prove it. So he called it the God particle with the idea that God is everywhere even though you really don't see him and you're certainly not going to prove him scientifically. You, don't, you can't use the science to prove the creator of science. But all of these atoms are in us. God knows every atom within us, within everything, within the fabric of the universe. He's that phenomenal, stronger, bigger, more powerful than any supercomputer could ever conceive to be. And yet, he knows each one of us personally. And that was that chapter. That God is personal in spite of his grandeur and infinite nature. So we have an infinite, we have a personal God. And after that, we talked about how in the last 60 years, there's been a cognitive revolution in language studies. And how since the 1950s, people led by Noam Chomsky at MIT have determined that you're not just taught language after you're born. Language is native to you. Your brain is pre-wired for language. Your brain thinks in words. Your brain operates in the sphere of language. And we said now a God who is infinite and yet personal, who cares about humans, when humans are wired to think and understand in language, doesn't it make sense? The only thing that makes sense is that such a God would communicate in language. And so we talked about Revelation. 
and how God communicates, not only in Revelation, but in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate communication from God, the ultimate word from God. From there we went the next week and we talked about what is reality? What is truth? Are we living in a Truman show? Do we live in the matrix? How do we know what's real is real? We said God is the basis of truth. So as we examine who God is, God's not only infinite, He's not only personal, He not only communicates, but He is what enables us to understand what is real versus what is not. We will rightly define truth by understanding and knowing the God of truth. He's the basis of truth. We can never get to truth simply by thinking on our own. This is why revelation is important. Man on his own, just thinking through the fallen mind that he has will never be able to determine the ultimate truths of God absent God's revelation and work through man. And that's what we had. Following that, let's move these around a little bit. So we've got God is infinite. We're running out of room. God is personal. God is communicative. He communicates. God's the basis of truth. From there, we went the next week and we talked about good and evil. We asked, who is the 20th century's bloodiest tyrant and had trouble determining the debate of scholars between Hitler, Stalin, and Mao? Because it all depends on what you're considering bloodiest. But each responsible for tens of millions of deaths. And we asked that week, what makes evil, evil? What makes good, good? Why can I say that Hitler was evil? Hitler would tell you, hey, I wasn't evil. I was doing good. How could you say you were doing good? You were mass killing genocide. Not just Jews, but anybody that didn't fit your plan. Didn't fit your Aryan perspective. And Hitler's comment was, well, that would be a good thing to do. Because I'm helping evolve the human race. We as we exist now are still too close to the monkeys. We need to become the super race. And only with genetic purity can we do that. There's a limited amount of food. There's a limited amount of resources. The best thing we can do is keep it from those that we need to call from the herd. And let's purify the breed. He would say that's a good thing. And when we argue with him, we have to have a basis for arguing. When we say, no, it's evil, we need to have a reason for knowing it's evil. And so we discussed the fact, and this was the week that got kind of digging into the philosophy trenches. We talked about the Euthyphro dilemma. And Socrates and Plato is good, good because God does it, or is good, good because God says it. We discussed how neither of those are the answer. Good is good because good is what God is. God is a moral God. God defines good not by just announcing it, not just by doing it, but by who He is. The essence of God is good. God Himself has a morality. And we call that morality which is God good. 
that morality which is not God we call evil. And it gives us an objective standard. And it gives us an ability to say Hitler was wrong. And it gives us an ability to stand up for the value of human life today. So that's where we went from there. We talked about the fact that we have free moral choices. We are morally responsible. B.F. Skinner was not right when he said we've moved beyond freedom. We've moved beyond dignity where we're just programmed machines. Where it's predetermined by our environment and our genetics. Every decision we'll make. That the word decision is just an illusion because all you are is a chemical reaction in your brain. And those chemicals have been aligned by the environment you've been exposed to. The things that have happened to you. The way you've been genetically wired. And, and, and that's wrong. The Bible teaches and there is a God who teaches. Who has revealed to us that you do have moral choices. You can make decisions. And with that ability to make decisions comes responsibility. True moral responsibility. And yes, there is a truth in the universe that things are cause and effect. And, and while Skinner may apply that to our minds with the idea that everything we do is just an effect that's been caused by chemicals. The truth of the matter is, is that man has an independence there. The cause and effect is actually put in place by God for the universe. It's a reflection of a just God. It's a reflection of a consistent God. It's a God who is so great that in his consistency, evil will be destroyed. Evil brings death. Good brings life. That's God. And the cause and effect is true. It leaves us in a quandary because all of us have chosen impurity to some degree or some fashion in our lives. And the question becomes, if, if, if God is um, an exam paper, and heaven forbid God be an exam paper, but for purposes of analogies, work with me for a moment. Let's consider that God is like an exam 100% pure. 100%. Totally pure. And God wants to bring you and me into his family. Into his kingdom. Into his world, which is a world of 100% purity. Now the problem is, uh, there are a few of you... Okay, guys like me, we're hitting about 10, 15% purity. I'm a lawyer. I get handicapped on this one. I get like 50 bonus points just to stay in the curve. But some of you guys are really, really good. I know some of you. We got some 80 percenters out there. We got a couple that are 95%. We might have the best person that's ever walked on the planet other than Jesus Christ. Let's give us a 99.9%. Whoops. Question. Can any of those exist with a 100% God and God stay 100%? 
it, it, it just can't happen. You can't have a 100% exam average and then say, oh, I've got 100% and I got a 99 on this exam. What's my new average? 199 divided by 2? 99.5%. Just doesn't work. So if we go back to the PowerPoint, we've got free will, we've got free moral choice. We have a just God who is cause and effect. And that's the problem that we've got. Because God is not just infinite and personal and communicative. He's truth. He defines good. And he's just. So we're here with moral responsibility. Which brought us to the last lesson, the audacity of the resurrection. Where we looked at what really happened. And we discussed within the framework of that, that what happened is, truly, factually, Jesus Christ was resurrected physically from the grave. And so in looking at that, we put all of this together today and we take it from here in epilogue. If God's infinite, personable, communicative, truth, good, just, and he resurrected Jesus, I ask you this question. Is heaven your hope or your destiny? Let me suggest to you that it's your destiny. I want to put a couple of passages up. I want to start with Ephesians 1.7. Now in Ephesians 1.7, Paul was telling the church at Ephesus, a church he was very close to. He spent a lot of time there. Those were his friends. Not just a mission effort. He, he lived there for years. He developed a good relationship with these people. He said, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. His death is a redeeming death for us. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of this gift that he's given us on the cross. But he doesn't end it there. He says that God was making known to us the mystery of his will which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. God's death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus was not simply for forgiveness of sins, but it was the mystery, and by mystery there, mysterion is the Greek word. It's talking about something that was covered up that people didn't understand and people didn't see. They didn't see the answer to the problem of moral sin with a moral God. Of moral responsibility for sin in front of a just God. Of God who has an interest in man and has communicated with man and man has no excuses. And yet man falls. And the mystery of how God was going to take a 99.9% into his purity was found on the cross. And that was the revelation of it. But it was a plan not only for then, it's a plan for eternity. For the fullness of time, all things will be united in Christ. Paul says it this way in Romans 3. Christ died to show God's righteousness. 
Because God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Jesus had to die if the world was going to end on the day on Easter Sunday. Jesus still had to die. Because God in patience had overlooked the sins of Abraham. How were Abraham's sins forgiven? By the death of Christ. How were David's sins forgiven? By the death of Christ. The death of Christ. And, and, and we look at it and, and I had one person as I've spoken this class through to different people. I had one person say to me, well how can you say that God can't fellowship with evil? Because God fellowships with us. And the response is, God exists out of time. He's not locked into time. He has an existence outside of time. Your God is too small if your God is stuck in time. He exists outside of time and he's able to look beyond time. time he's not bound in this moment. The death of Christ was adequate for Abraham in the timeless God's mind. The death of Christ was something that was planned before the foundation of the world, Paul said in Ephesians. God's not locked into this moment there. He's beyond it. So Paul says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ. Christ died for my sins. He had my sins accounted to himself. I hadn't even done them yet. I wasn't born yet. But the timeless God wraps up all sin and puts it on Jesus Christ. Even though we were, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says, God, look, made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with him. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. See, it's not just the cross here. We take the cross and set it aside. It's the empty tomb. Because God raised us up with him. He not only died for our trespasses, but he was resurrected. And with him, outside of time, we were raised up. Ask me about the day, of my, the day I got saved. It was almost 2,000 years ago. Ask me about when I was, was, was resurrected to a new life. It was about 2,000 years ago. Now Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 sets out a number of what I call if-thens. Actually, I don't call them that because I call them that. That's what they are. if then, cause and effect. If, then. And we don't, ah, we're running a little tight of time. Let's see if we can get through some of these together. And if we can, great. And if not, I've got a summary I'll give you. He starts out and he says, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is what you received in which you stand, by which you're saved. Here's the word I preached to you. Here's what he said. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. If you have trouble accepting it and you have trouble believing it, and Paul's writing this in the early 50s A.D., 
And no scholar fusses that. This is not uh, uh, where scholars are going to say, well, I think the Gospel of Matthew was written in the 2nd century. Uh, No. Every scholar is going to say, Paul wrote this in the 50s. In accordance with the Scriptures, in other words, 20 years after the events, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the Twelve, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. Check it out. Then he appeared to James, and last of all, he appeared to me. So this is what Paul's saying. Here's the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's our if-thens. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and in the Greek, they don't translate it here, but the Greek grammar is such that this is an if-then statement. So you can put then in here. It's just implied in the translation. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there's no resurrection? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain. Then your faith is in vain. Then we're found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise. If he's not raised, if it's true that the dead aren't raised, we're misrepresenting God. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. They're gone. If... Christ is not raised, if we only have hope for him in this life, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. Don't even pretend he was. If God's not resurrecting from the dead, there's, he didn't resurrect Jesus. Jesus is dead. If there's, and all of these witnesses are liars, Paul said. And I've changed my life and done a 180 and took all of the cushy, cushy, wonderful things I had going and threw them away to live a horribly tough life. And my preaching in this is worthless. It's empty. It's in vain. It has no basis, no validity whatsoever. It's absolutely worthless. Not only is my preaching worthless, he says, but your faith is worthless. And not only that, but all of us are lost in sin. And anybody who dies is gone. Sniff. Snuffed out. Boom. It's over. Game done. But then he gives some other if-thens. He says, but... If there's a resurrection, and you can pull these and look at them. In the interest of time, I'll put them up here. If there is a resurrection from the dead, then Jesus was resurrected. As everybody said, and everybody saw, and as the witnesses attested to. And if Jesus was erected, then resurrection comes to the believers in Christ. And if Jesus is resurrected, not only does resurrection come to believers in Christ, but Christ will return again. And he will destroy everything, including death. 
if there is a resurrection from the dead, if I'm not lying to you, Paul said, if all these witnesses, eyewitnesses, aren't lying to you, eyewitnesses who are willing to die and did die for what they believed when they could have spared their lives simply by recanting. And I'm not talking just Stephen or just Peter, ultimately Paul. I'm talking about hundreds and thousands of Christian martyrs. If Christ is resurrected, then resurrection comes to all of us. That's the reason he was resurrected. Now, how does it come to us? What's it going to be like? What happens to your mom? What happens to us? Paul addresses that as well. First of all, he says in... uh, uh, You see, in Corinth, there were people who didn't believe in a resurrection. That's why he's having to do this. In Corinth, there were people who thought, well, you know, the Christian faith is good because it teaches a nice morality and it it, it gives us a good direction for this life and it gives meaning to our life. But let's not push the edge of the envelope. After all, how many of you have died and can really tell us what it was like? Okay, so that was their mentality. Uh, yeah, what, what, look, I have seen dead bodies. They don't resurrect, they decay. So this is what Paul says. Now, just as soon as I'm teaching this, he says, someone's going to ask this question. All right, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they get? Paul says, you foolish person. The word fool there is a fool in the sense of of the Old Testament usage of the word. That a fool is someone who lives their life oriented with an idea that there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You foolish person, he says. If if you put a seed into the ground, that seed dies, it decays. But what comes out of it is life. There are lots of different bodies. You can have lots of different kinds of life come out of a seed. Each to its own kind. Look at the stars in the sky. They're their own kind of bodies. There are bodies that aren't even flesh and blood. And he said what's going to happen to us is what's sown is perishable. This body that dies is like a seed sown. It's perishable. One kind of body you've got right now that's perishable will become a body that is imperishable. So it changes. It's not a question of, well, how's he going to keep the telomeres from from continuing to reduce down and us getting cancer? That's not the issue. This is a perishable body. What we're going to have is imperishable. This is a dishonorable body. Why do you think I wear clothes? To keep you from laughing. This is a body that's not adequate for what it should be. This is a body that doesn't do what it always should do. But what is dishonorable will be glorified. 
And the body that we have, the imperishable body, won't be one that's good. Oh, heaven forbid I live forever like this. I won't. My eternity is not in the dishonorable body. It's in a glorified body. It's not in a body that's weak and inadequate. It's in a body that's got the power, the dunamis of God. The power of resurrection that will, 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 will work in my body. Whatever that body may be. This is a body that belongs in this universe. Is natural, is made of... You know, it's interesting. There's an old Serbian proverb... Be proud, for you are made of the stuff of stars. But be humble, for you are made of the stuff of dung. And there's a lot of truth to that. Stars spit out matter and material. And dung is part of the process of creating our foodstuffs. But we won't be natural, we will be supernatural. We'll be beyond the realm of nature as we know it. That's the eternal hope, that's the eternal destiny. How does it come about? That's how it comes about. That is heaven. And if you see heaven as a lottery instead of a destiny, then your God is still too small. Because this is not just some roll of the dice. We're not buying a lottery ticket. Now, some of you are going to sit there and say, wait a minute. Paul frequently talks about the hope of our salvation. So he's hoping to be saved. He's not presuming. He's hoping. I've put a section into your handout where we talked about that word hope. And as we're getting ready for the New Testament, we're getting ready to read some Greek. New Testament's in Greek. And the Greek word for hope is this word, elpis. Okay? It's, um, it's uh, in English, it would be E-L-P-I-S. Elpis. And that means, well, it's translated hope. And Paul does talk about the hope of our salvation. But... It doesn't mean hope in the sense of buying a lottery ticket. I gave you a good reference to help you understand the meaning of the word in the lesson where we talked about Paul and Silas being constantly badgered day in and day out by this girl who had a gift of divination. She, a, a gift, a, a demon of divination. She could tell the future. And she was a slave girl owned by some fellas. And those fellas... She was their ATM machine. She was their goose laying a golden egg. They would charge for her. She was like a real Madame Cleo. She really had it. Through demonic work, she was able to tell the future. And the passage of Scripture says this. It says that she had brought her owners, brought, past tense, her owners, much gain. Much gain. She'd already made them a ton of dough. Now she kept day after day after day following Paul, badgering him, badgering him, badgering him. And finally he just got tired of it. And he turned around and commanded the demon to come out of her. And the demon did. And the walking ATM machine 
who for years had brought her owners much gain, they had no reason to think today was a risky day. They had no reason to think this fellow Paul was going to do that. He killed Paul, derailed their gravy train. And when Luke is writing it up in the book of Acts, he says, And when they saw that their hope for money was gone, they took Paul in front of the magistrates. Well, theirs wasn't a, gee, I hope she gets us some money today. She was an ATM machine. She was a slot machine that paid every time you pulled the lever. Hope in the New Testament sense, more times than not, you could better translate it, a confident expectation. It's something that we confidently expect, we just don't have yet. And that's the hope of our salvation. So if you see heaven as a lottery instead of a destiny, then your God is too small. God did not put you here and he did not speak into your life and he did not die for you and he did not resurrect Jesus just so you would have a good moral compass in this life. He did it so those in Jesus would be pure with the righteousness of Christ and be dead to their sins but resurrected with Him. We're in that middle stage right now. We're redeemed. We're bought with a price. We have the Spirit within us and we are built for the future even as this life will ebb away. That's the God that we worship. And that's the God who is there. And so, that's our epilogue. And I want to thank you for this class this summer. Before we go, points for home. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him. We have been resurrected in a new life. We're not living in our resurrection body yet. We've still got the old body. We're not living with the, 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 the resurrection mind, though He is renewing our minds. But we are living with the resurrection assurance. And with the spirit of power that resurrected Christ from the dead within us as believers. Let's choose to live in God's resurrection power. And not in the old man and old woman that is destined for dust. It's a choice. Point for home two. You foolish person. Oh, to think that we might live this life with a little G God. With a God who's not big enough to hold the stars in his hand. With a God that's not big enough to know every atom within us, every care, every teardrop. With a God who's not big enough to care. 
with a God who's not big enough to communicate and to speak into our lives, with a God who's not big enough to define good and evil, with a God who's not big enough to reach down into this world and judge evil for what it is and redeem good, with a God who's not big enough to incarnate and become man and experience the thoughts and emotions that only a man can experience, with a God who's not big enough to resurrect Jesus from the dead. And to resurrect us. And anytime you face a struggle in your life, without prayerfully giving that struggle to God, you're living with a little G God. Don't do it. Don't be foolish. Live with a big G God. Because He's bigger than we're able to discuss even in this class. Last point for home. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. Be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, do you recognize this verse? It's the last verse in that entire 1 Corinthians 15 chapter that dealt with the resurrection. Paul talked about the resurrection. It's what he preached. He gave the witnesses. He gave the proof for it. He gave the arguments that if it's not there, then everything's a waste and we're just idiots and fools. But in fact, the real fools are the people who deny the resurrection and the power of the resurrection God. And after he walks through all of that, he ends it in typical Paul fashion with a point for home. He says, so... Because all of that's true about the power of a resurrecting God, you don't let anybody push you around. You be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You work for the Lord. You work for the Lord. You work for His kingdom because it's not in vain. His kingdom will come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have the honor of working with a God who's that great. Would you pray with me? Lord, we humbly come before you by the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and in his purity. And we come before you in the spirit of your resurrection power, proclaiming ourselves ready for whatever you have for us. May we see the rest of today, the rest of this week, the rest of our lives as an opportunity with joy and confidence to serve you with what we say, with what we do, with how we spend the resources you give us, with how we spend each moment of our day. We long for your kingdom. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.